Trump's defence chief tells Europe how to do it. The Royal Marines' winter warfare carder. The threat snowballs. Who can bring North Korea into line? And peace or justice is the long wait for the war criminal's day in court worth it? A timely reminder is how the Defence Secretary has described the US Defence Secretary's ultimatum to the majority of allies not honouring the NATO commitment on spending. In a wide-ranging interview at NATO HQ, he told Charlotte Banks British ground troops would not be sent to Syria as well. First, though, does he support the US's tough talk on defence spending? Yes, we do. We all agreed to spend uh, 2% of our wealth on defence. We agreed that over two and a half years ago. Uh, Britain make, meets that uh, target and we expect other allies to meet it as well. America is serious about this and so are we. How concerned would you be if America did reduce its commitment though? Well, what America has done today and yesterday is issued a very timely reminder of that commitment. A number of allies are now working up towards the 2% but we want uh, all of them to do so and I hope uh, um, that uh, this warning has uh, has served that purpose. Now, during yesterday's talk, there were uh, plans unveiled for a southern defensive hub proposed in Naples to target threats from uh, North Africa and the Middle East. What would the British commitment to that be, do you think? Well, first of all, it's important that uh, we emphasise the need for NATO to be secure 360 degrees. This isn't simply about increasing Russian aggression in the, in the northeast or Russian submarine activity in the North Atlantic. NATO needs to look to its borders, uh, north, east, west and south. And Britain has an interest in that um, because of the uh, terrorism that's coming from Daesh in the Middle East, uncontrolled migration across the uh, Mediterranean, instability in the Gulf. So we will be making our commitment to that. We've already made a commitment to NATO's Aegean Task Force to help deal with uncontrolled uh, immigration. And this year we are sending RAF Typhoons to Romania to be part of NATO's Southern Air Policing, which will, I hope, reassure the southern flank of NATO. And the other flank of NATO, Russia. In your meetings with General Mattis recently, what have you discovered about the new administration's outlook towards Russia? Uh, the, new, the new administration is under no illusions about Russian uh, ambition and ru Russian opportunism and the extent to which Russia is uh, uh, weaponizing uh, misinformation. Uh, they're under no illusions about that. General Mattis himself is a former NATO commander and uh, we had when our Prime Minister visited Washington uh, from the President himself this 100% commitment to NATO. Uh, of course it's right that America engages with Russia, so do we. We have to keep talking to Russia, but our policy is very much engage, but beware. In Iraq, the coalition is poised for its final push into Mosul to defeat Daesh there. How are British troops contributing to that battle? I was in Iraq at the end of uh, last week visiting uh, British troops. Uh, we've been contributing by uh, providing uh, intelligence, uh, mainly from the air. We've been providing uh, precision airstrikes in support of Iraqi ground forces and our troops have been training 
have been training Iraqi and Kurdish uh, forces in the basic infantry skills they need to help them reduce the number of casualties they're taking and to help them deal with improvised explosive devices. And I was very proud to visit those troops uh, doing the training at Al-Assad Air Base uh, in the west of Iraq and uh, up uh, near Erbil in the Kurdish region. They're making a big contribution to the steady military progress that the Iraqis are achieving. General Mattis has been tasked as a new Defence Secretary in a new administration to come up with a new strategy in defeating um, Daesh. And in recent days we've heard some reports from the Pentagon that there is a possibility that boots on the ground in Syria might be part of that strategy. Would you support a policy like that? Well, the 30-day review that the President has asked uh, the Pentagon to complete is not yet uh, finished. We'll be I uh, hope uh, getting an outline of it this afternoon when the uh, counter-dash coalition ministers uh, meet and seeing uh, how far that uh, review is, is near to uh, completion. It's for the Americans to decide whether or not to deploy ground forces. We're not doing that, we're not deploying British troops, but we will continue to make uh, a huge contribution, probably the second across the coalition, to the airstrikes that are necessary in support of uh, um, the uh, counter-dash work on the ground. That was the Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon speaking to Charlotte Banks there. Well, Sir Michael is in Brussels for a meeting of Defence Ministers. I'm joined, as usual, today by BFPS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Hello. Of course, uh, the US Defence Secretary James Mattis, this is his first meeting of Defence Ministers, and uh, he's pulling no punches, isn't he? And he's, he's not, on, uh, he's not on, on strange ground either. I mean, a NATO commander... He knows it. Uh, a lot of the people that are there already know him. And I think that he is probably one of the most trustworthy uh, uh, appointments in NATO terms that, that, that they've been seen. Can I just make a point about this, the new strategy about uh, counter, counter Daesh? Uh, it's new strategy as far as the United States is concerned. It's not new strategy as far as everybody else is concerned, but they have to join in to some extent, whatever Trump comes up with or, or whether the Pentagon comes up with. Otherwise, people are going to turn around in Washington and say, well, you know, these people, you know, these people are not on mm. our side. And that's particularly important. The other thing to remember that in military terms, uh, this is not a new administration. The military who are going to be making these observations, making these plans if necessary, are the same guys that were there before. I mean, the same general officers, half generals, etc. So put that, we ought to keep that in mind. Mm, uh, now, this all comes at a time when US relations with Russia are at best uh, very confusing. We hear today that the US Defence Secretary has said that he doesn't see the conditions for military collaboration with Russia, despite a sort of a, an olive branch perhaps being publicly put out by his counterpart. And then we have this resignation, of course, of Michael Flynn, the National Security Advisor, over his less than clear account of the negotiations or discussions he had before uh, Donald Trump was elected, before he was in the post himself. Uh, what can we glean at the moment about the state of those relations? Well, the first thing is to recognise that, is that uh, General Mattis in no way is going to get out in Brussels and say, oh, the Russians, yeah, great pals of mine. They're great, <laughs> you know, we were on the phone just before the election. No, look, we've got to put this in perspective. So that's the party line, you're that saying? Is, it, is, it is the Mattis line. 
Mm. I mean, he is, he is his own man very, very much. He could walk if he thought so. He doesn't have to, but he could. He's that sort of good. The other thing that when you see Shoigu or, or, the, or, the, or the Russian um, defence staff uh, saying, well, you know, we could get back with NATO. They actually want to get back with NATO. They want to get back working full-time on the NATO Cooperation mm -hmm. uh, Council. That in itself is particularly uh, important. Mike Flynn, uh, the fact that he had to go, well, that's a thing for the Americans, but he's also Andrew Puster, who is the Labour Minister, or was going to be the Labour Secretary, uh, he's pulled out. And so Mr Trump has lost two people on very sensitive issues. And what they're saying in, what, in, in Washington at the moment is that this whole thing could end up with Another Watergate. Now, Watergate, to remind me, was 1972-74 was when the then-President Nixon uh, was impeached and had to resign. And so if people are talking like that on, for example, the Defence Intelligence Committee, uh, then that shows an example of how mm. serious it's taken. You do get a sense that the, the whole global and political, geopolitical landscape is changing in a state of flux at the moment. You only have to look at Donald Trump's... Uh, press conference yesterday after having met the Israeli Prime Minister where he talked about his openness to a two-state or a one-state solution. It just seemed that everything is up for grabs and up for talking. Yeah, you listen to the uh, to the the Arab Council this morning. These are the, the sort of the, the equivalent of the EU uh, in, in the Gulf states, etc. They're saying no way. You can't do this. We've got to stick to the original plan that there was only one solution in the Middle East, and that is a that is a two-state solution, i.e., the state of Palestine, the state the state of Israel. Uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of uh, uh, Israel, uh, heard Mr. Trump say that, and you look at his face, absolutely flabbergasted. Never heard anything like this, and he thought to himself, he's saying that it's all Israel's. And, you know, I've got a new friend in Washington. I think that is the problem, uh, and that's the problem of making not so much uh, policy on the hoof, but saying things without knowing what they really mean. Mm. The second part is there's a whole group of people who have now got to go to the Senate committees and say things uh, and be questioned and make statements. And that is the point when people start watching their backs. That's the, uh, that's the point when they start to be questioned so closely they could uh, make other re uh, uh, revelations that will surprise everybody and that's when we're back to this idea, Watergate. Could we it happen will, again? We will wait for the next instalment with bated breath. Uh, Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep. With Still to come, has China lost all influence on North Korea? And waiting for justice, how long do you wait to get a war criminal to court? PFBS Sit rep. Military interests in the Arctic are at their highest since the Cold War, so the regular extreme winter warfare training that goes on has perhaps never been more relevant. Royal Navy and Royal Marines are currently on exercise clockwork in northern Norway, and Rebecca Ricks is just back. Uh, hi, Becky. And this wasn't your first time in the Norwegian Arctic with the Marines. What was different this time? Hi, Kate. No, it she wasn't very much different at all really the content side of things is very much the same the command is it the key thing is making sure that their people can operate and survive in conditions you're looking at temperatures of minus 25 minus 30 minus 35 you can't just sit on your burger and have a break you'd be in serious trouble after that and it doesn't just affect people it affects the equipment too so we were filming exercise clockwork and that's with merlin mark three helicopters and it takes almost twice as long to get them up in the air and going by the time everything's warmed up so actually in all not a lot different Mm. It's been going on for more than 45 years, I understand, though. What, what is it all for? 
Well, continued readiness. I mean, you look back, Iraq, Afghanistan, they've all been desert operations, and you can't cuff an operation in the Arctic. Temperatures at that level will cause serious trouble to individuals if they haven't got their, their wits on them. Um, it's not new. Clockwork has been running since 1969, actually. Uh, the only year it didn't run, run was in the Gulf, uh, the start of the Gulf War. And it's it's all about getting the lead commando group ready for whatever operations they could be sent on. The Marines are considered the experts in Arctic warfare. And um, a lot of people are looking around now wondering whether somewhere in the Arctic might be where we go next. And Norway has obviously a border close to, you know, close to Russia. Is that at all relevant? Well, I would say so. Um, you know, it's only said again this week that Russia's been behaving aggressively in the Arctic. Um, and if you look, the US are in northern Norway training with the Royal Marines now. It's, um, it's been said this is part of a presence to reassure Nor- Norway and NATO. Um, and it's now become a regular rotation. I remember only a few years back, actually, that the US were training with the Royal Marines in Norway for the first time. And one thing you do realise from being there is that Norwegians very much want the British there. Even just being around town, you can see the locals like having them there. Um, and is it really any wonder when you've got Russia so close to your back door? Mm, Christopher Lee is listening to this. Uh, and Christopher, the training hasn't changed much in, in much over the years. Do you think it's more important given the geopolitical climate? I think it's when you get a rift in the two societies and it's not just the army it's just not just the military it's political it's cultural it's everything that's going on at the moment then you get worried and don't forget that border being cl- norway being close to russia it's not just close it's next door if you go up there in the Kola inlet for example you actually sort of walk across a bit of wire and you're in russia and right from the beginning from april 1949 when when nato was being formed and NATO was 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 the life story, really, of one of uh, of Trigvi Lee, one of Norway's uh, great leaders. He always said, when Russia invades Europe, the second prong will come through that northern inlet, the Kola, the Kola, Kola Peninsula, and. In, in a way, uh, Norway has been living that forever since. So these uh, these warfare exercises, and don't forget what they're called, uh, the Royal Marines have a, a, a sort of a warfare uh, exercise every year, and they do not just the same things, they do it more intensely. Christopher, stay with us. Rebecca Ricks, thank you for joining us today. Now, for the last decade, the United States has been leaning on China to do something about North Korea. It's clear that China has little, if any, influence on the country. At the weekend, the communist regime carried out another medium-to-long-range ballistic missile test. Emil Dahl is a research fellow at the Proliferation and Nuclear Policy Programme at the Royal United Services Institute and joins us now. Emil, good to speak to you today. Um, Tell us about this latest test exactly how significant is it well it is quite significant um because unlike north korea's other missile launches that we've seen over the last year uh, the latest test used a solid fuel engine as opposed to a liquid fuel engine um, which requires greater preparation Um, solid fuel is is pre-stored in the missile so it allows north korea to significantly reduce the preparation time that they need for a missile launch um, and that in turn makes it a lot more difficult for us to detect um, when a launch is imminent uh, and conduct a preemptive strike before a North Korean launch. Um, it'll also be harder to detect via uh, things like satellite imagery which we've been relying upon uh, that North Korea is preparing a, 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 
a missile launch, as the missile can simply be rolled out of a cave shortly before a launch. Just how seriously should the international community be taking North Korea's nuclear ambitions? Quite seriously. I I think um, we've seen, especially under Kim Jong-un's leadership, um, a step up in activity from North Korea. two nuclear tests in the last year um, and over 20 uh, missile launches. They have a clear objective to develop a a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile capability to deliver a, 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 be able to threaten the the US mainland. So we should be quite concerned that that's definitely the direction that they're going in. And just how much influence do you think China has? I think China does have influence over North Korea. It's a neighboring state and traditionally it's its closest trading partner. I think the question is whether China is willing to use this potential leverage. Um, After the recent test, we saw China coming out over the weekend uh, saying that the North Korean nuclear problem was down to the United States and South Korea. Um, China is very concerned about uh, deployment of advanced American uh, anti-ballistic missile systems to South Korea. uh, which is a deployment that will now be moved up in the calendar, uh, given recent events. Um, it's also very concerned about a destabilized North Korea uh, and a potential overspill into its uh, territory should uh, North Korea be destabilized. Um, we have seen China becoming more open to pursuing tougher sanctions against North Korea in recent years. Um, but again, one thing is to agree to those sanctions in principle, uh, and another is to enact them in, in practice, which we've yet to see uh, completely from China. Mm. Christopher Lee is listening to this, our defence analyst. Christopher, um, how stable do you rate North Korea at the moment? Of course, we've seen the half-brother uh, assassinated in the last couple of days. Uh, does this mean that Kim Jong-un's position is pretty safe at the moment? Um, you better ask him that because he reacts how safe he feels. Uh, Outsiders at the moment might look at it and say, well, he is going back, say, three years when he thought some of his politburos, we would call it, uh, was not entirely on his side. And he doesn't do things by half. I mean, he, he executed his uncle in 2013 because he thought it was a possibility that he might be leading a coup. There's also a story going around, and you've got to be careful, it's only a story, uh, that King Jong uh, Nam, the man that died in Kuala Lumpur, uh, may have been uh, approached by the CIA, who think that one of the ways of actually curbing this nuclear uh, ambition in North Korea might be a palace revolution. And it won't work from inside, but it might work if people think there is somebody outside who might come in and take over. Now, that's a lousy job, or anybody puts the Mm. rumour around you've got it, it's a lousy thing to have. And there's the rumour going around that that's in fact what happened in Kuala Lumpur. Emil Dahl, um, how close do you think North Korea is to producing a nuclear warhead? And if it is intent on doing that, is there anything that can be done to stop it? Uh, so North Korea has, has, of course, already developed a, a nuclear explosive device, um, and we know this. The question is whether they are able to, first of all, fit it onto a missile um, and next deliver it to a target. Um, at this point, I think it should be assumed that North Korea has, has managed to make their nuclear device small enough to actually fit onto a missile. Um, the challenge comes, however, with the long-range intercontinental capability that I spoke of previously, uh, where the warhead would need a re-entry into the atmosphere in order to be delivered um, long-range and, and threaten the U.S. mainland. That requires heat resistance technology, pressure change, a number of other challenges which North Korea has yet to demonstrate. 
I think we can, however, assume that all of their efforts are going towards developing this capability. Um, so it's not a question of of if they're going to do it, but but rather when it's oh, going to happen. When when do you think, Emil? Um, <laughs> put uh, you on the spot. Sorry, I'm I'm not I'm not ready to to put a specific timeline in place. Um, many experts have said that that before 2020 would be a realistic um, uh, goal for this. Uh, I'm not ready to personally put a, put a, put a number on it. I think we should look at the level of activity going on at the moment and the determination and the fact that North Korea is a regime that has sacrificed any other um, thing to have. Uh, nuclear capability. Uh, nuclear capability is the center of regime survival. It sees nuclear weapons to deter an attack from the West uh, and sees it as its ultimate defense. Um, it does not have good um, <laughs> conditions. Um, the, the country is poor. It is putting all of its efforts, all of its money towards a nuclear program. All right, Emil Dow, good to speak to you. That's Emil Dow from the Royal United Services Institute. At some point this year, a verdict is expected at the last big trial of the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Last December, prosecutors began their closing arguments at the war crimes trial of former Bosnian Serb commander Ratko Mladic in The Hague. After that case ends, the court's work is scheduled to be wound up. Well, Professor David Crane is a man that knows a thing or two about war crimes tribunals. He was the chief prosecutor of the special court for Sierra Leone, where he indicted the Liberian President Charles Taylor. Uh, good to speak to you today, Professor Crane. Do you think we will see the day when President Assad will face a similar tribunal for possible war crimes in Syria? Well, thank you for having me on, and I appreciate this opportunity. And to answer your question uh, directly, uh, yes, he will be held accountable. Obviously, there are factors that will influence that. But over time, uh, individuals who commit mass atrocities in the 21st century uh, will be held accountable. We just have the mechanisms to do so. I will tell you that when I took down Charles Taylor, you know, Charles Taylor never expected to be held accountable for the murder, rape, maiming, and mutilation of over 1.2 million human beings. And now he sits in a, a maximum security prison in Her Majesty's uh, prison system in England uh, for the rest of his life. So. Even though it seems like uh, these individuals, these heads of state, are impecunious, in reality, uh, they will be held accountable. There is no statute of limitations for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Mm. Does it matter how long it takes to bring people to justice? Presumably, um, for the relatives, sometimes 20 years or so is far too long. Indeed, and I am certainly not going to uh, step uh, over the uh, the feelings of the victims and their families. Uh, that's what this is all about, is about the victims and their families. But again, you also have to live in a real world, a geopolitical world. And sometimes uh, justice doesn't happen fast, but justice does happen. Uh, obviously, Raklo Madic is being tried for his involvement in the Srebrenica massacre in which more than 8,000 men and boys were killed. Uh, yeah, that was more than 20 years ago. How long do you think it will take uh, to get justice in Syria? Well, the, direct, the simple answer is I don't know, and nor does anybody else. Uh, however, we should be heartened by the fact that... Uh, over the past six years, organizations like the one I had, uh, the Syrian Accountability Project, uh, and the new UN permanent office that was recently set up that I 
originally approached the UN over in August of 2016, became an office and was uh, established uh, just two weeks ago by the Secretary General. And this particular office will officially uh, begin to collect uh, evidence that will be handed over to a future domestic, regional, or international prosecutor. So the process has begun, and it's really heartening to see that over 105 nations voted in favor of this new office, which is euphemistically called uh, the Independent Mechanism, which will be housed in Geneva. So just exactly how does it work then at the moment? How does how is it decided who should be prosecuted and who goes about gathering the information? Well, again, I told you, uh, usually uh, uh, NGOs initially begin to gather information, but now the UN has created the independent uh, mechanism. But it's important but, uh, for uh, The reason I'm asking, I suppose, is when you have a situation in Syria and you've got the Russians who are now an ally of President Assad, that pretty much muddies the waters. Oh, indeed it does. Uh, it certainly muddies the water. And as I was about to say, you know, in modern international uh, criminal law, the bright red thread of, uh, of the whole process is politics. And uh, so it'll be a political decision to hand over Assad and his henchmen and others, uh, not a legal one. We're ready to do it. We have the jurisprudence, the experience, uh, and uh, the rules of procedure and evidence to do so. And now we have a permanent UN agency uh, that will be developing uh, this case. And even though the Syrian Accountability Project, which I had, is already doing that, this will be the official effort which will standardize the uh, creation of proper evidence that will be mm. s submitted in a court someday against Assad. So take heart. I th <laughs> I think that he will uh, be held accountable someday. Um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this. You say that President Assad will be held accountable, uh, Professor Crane. Uh, Christopher, do you think it's conceivable that the, the Russian side, wow. the Russians might be prosecuted for war crimes in Syria? Isn't this what you have professors for? Mm. Um, I will tell you... Uh, Mr. Uh, Assad is accused of war crimes. Russia joins in President Assad's war. Does Russia therefore become uh, equally culpable in those war, science, uh, war crimes <laughs> simply by association? And if so, it will never get anywhere because nobody's going to take Russia to uh, any, any court whatsoever. Professor Crane. Well, interesting. Uh, I, I, I... I'll take exception to his, his flip comment about Professor. <laughs> I spent 40 years uh, in uh, special operations intelligence, also in uh, prosecuting war criminals, and I just happen to be a professor now. So I come at this with 40 years of experience in the real world, so I, I, I don't like the flip Oh, I, actually, I, actually, I, actually took it, I actually took it as a compliment, actually. I took it the other way, well, Professor. <laughs> well, let anyway, in, the professor, let me come in and just say I apologise. <laughs> there you go. Well, okay. I, I, apologies uh, accepted. And yes, uh, uh, my colleague does make a good point. I mean, really, these are political events uh, created uh, in political circumstances. And yes, the Russians, uh, the Iranians, Hezbollah and others uh, really do, in fact, uh, uh, are really uh, problematic. However, uh, that doesn't stop uh, those of us who do this uh, uh, for a living, and we'll continue to, in fact, uh, uh, build this case. And as I said at the beginning of this, uh, Charles Taylor never thought, President Charles Taylor never mm. thought he'd be held accountable. Of course. So, yes, it, I mean, there, there may be a time, in a, in, geopolitically, there may be a time uh, when the politics lines up and that Assad would be handed over. Or there may not, and I fully agree uh, that it may not be possible at all.
Yeah, you say not possible. I mean, you take the case of Saddam Hussein, you take the case of Colonel Gaddafi, people who never really had their day in court. Well, of course. And of course, you know, the problem with the uh, uh, Saddam Hussein situation, it was perceived to be a kangaroo court uh, by the Americans, even though it probably wasn't. It certainly was perceived to be, and that's enough to kill any kind of result. Because again, courts have to be seen as fair and open, and I'm afraid this one uh, uh, did not work. In fact, the United Nations doesn't recognize uh, that that particular uh, mistake uh, in Iraq uh, related to trying to hold uh, him accountable. Professor David Crane, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today. We could go on for a long time. Um, Christopher, um, looking ahead to the weekend now, um, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Wrens is being celebrated, the Women's Royal Naval Service. Are you doing anything to commemorate that? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go down to Portsmouth because there's an, an, an exhibition starts. It's going to run till November. It starts on Saturday. 100 years of the Wrens. You know, the Wrens sort of disappeared and now they're in with uh, the Navy and there's no difference and the Wrens do, old Wrens do as much as the, uh, as the Navy does. But one thing... When you were in the Wrens, and if you got pregnant, you had to resign. Doesn't happen anymore. Must be a better Navy. Mm. Christopher, uh, thank you very much. And that's all you have time for today. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch. We're on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. Make sure you never miss an episode. Search online for the SITREP podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, thank you very much for joining us this week. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.